From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. We may be recorded, but it is a brand spanking new recording, never before aired. And we've had mailbag programs in the past. Today we're having a listener comment line program. So uh, we'll be taking some uh, calls that were left on our listener comment line. If you'd like to leave one of those comments, uh, you can call our regular number after hours, after 4 p.m. Central Time. And that number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. But don't call it right now because it won't pick up. We are here. Uh, for your listening pleasure, answering some of those listener comment line calls. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host, as he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Uh, Pretty good, and a very blessed uh, holiday season, Christmas, New Year, and all of the associated celebrations. We're in the octave, man. We are. We are. Eight days of feasting. So. uh, uh, I hope that you're doing that. Otherwise, it's so it's well, it's so hard. Do, please, do I look like I've missed a feast in the last uh, <laughs> half two century? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's not that's not going to happen. But yeah. it is good to finally get you to acquiesce to a feast. Uh, that's usually something we wrestle with from time to time. Um, let's take a listen in uh, now to the first of our okay. listener comment line calls. Hi, my name is Patricia. I wanted to find out if a baptism is legal, is truly a sacrament in the church. The deacon said, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I I don't know why he added the amen. I was just wondering, does that Mm -hmm. nullify, because he added that extra word on it, if that's still a valid baptism? Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, and there are certainly are some cases of uh, Catholic clergy sadly modifying the uh, form, not just to the ba- sacrament of baptism, but other sacraments as well. Uh, in this particular case, uh, that is, is not really an issue. Uh, the sacramental form is meant to say what is happening in the sacrament. Remember, a sacrament uh, as the old Baltimore Catechism I learned as a kid way, way, way long ago, it's an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. The outward sign is the pouring of the water and the words that are used which specify what is being accomplished. And here it is to baptize the person in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The presence or absence of an amen there would not affect that uh that form and what it is is doing together with the matter of the sacrament. And that is giving grace to the individual, whether a child or whether an adult convert, uh, giving them grace, taking away original sin, giving them the infused virtues uh, which come with uh, sanctifying grace and and so on. Uh, so that that's a particular example that would not be. Now, there have been some cases uh, in recent years uh, there were have uh, an example uh, not too long ago where some number of years ago somebody was observing a video of their own baptism and noticed that uh, the language was not the language of the church. 
So in some of those cases, it may be an effort to avoid the masculine references. There are those who uh, find it challenging to speak of God as Father and as Son. And so it might be, you know, in the name of God, the child, Holy Child and the, and the Spirit or some other equivocation of the, of the teaching of the Church on the nature of the Holy Trinity. And in that case, there was no baptism, and it, had to, and it had to be done. And over the decades, there have been a number of those kinds of cases. Outside of the Catholic Church, when the Church wants to take another Christian and receive them into the Catholic Church, one of the questions will be to determine whether their baptism is valid, and those forms, uh, proper matter and form, were used, the matter being the water, the form being the Trinitarian formula. And so that would be determined whether their Christian baptism was a valid baptism. The Church accepts all baptisms using the proper matter and form with the intention, essentially essentially what Scripture also says, to baptize the person into the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since our Lord and his salvific mission, his salvific act on the cross, is what inserts us into the mystery of, of Christ and into the, into the mystery of the Holy Trinity. So those elements have to be present. And so the Church looks at those. It has said, for example, that there are certain baptisms, the baptisms of the, uh, of the Church of Latter-day Saints, for example, which don't intend to do what the Church does, uh, of the Jehovah Witnesses and other, and other uh, uh, groups which don't follow the even mainline Protestant practice of the Trinitarian formula in water. But the absence of an amen um, is, is not a particular case, Patricia, uh, so you needn't worry about the validity of that particular baptism. Again, it's a very special listener comment line call edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Let's take a listen to our next call. Yes, this is Danny from Meade County, Kentucky. I have a NRSV New Catholic Edition Bible, and I noticed in it, it referring to the time frame as BCE, before common era. When did the Bible start using that terminology that seems kind of anti-Christian? <laughs> I would like a little explanation on that. Please. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. yeah um, let's just say I never use that. It, it gives me... Uh, well, let's just say I never used that. Um, within the within my lifetime, up until up until the 1960s and even 70s, I don't think I'd ever heard that term. In older documents and in older forms uh, forms of uh, oaths and things, uh, even in diplomas from universities, in that it will say in the year of our Lord. I just found my diploma recently from Northwestern, and right there, you know, in the year of our Lord, 1974, and very clearly that it's the year of our Lord. But there has been this effort, well, we don't want to, we don't want to tell everybody that we're dating history from the life of Christ, so let's say common era. So instead of the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, it's CE, the common era, and therefore, instead of before Christ, it's BCE. Uh, I know very many Catholics and even non-Catholic Christians and others who just, you know, wretch at that kind of a, a usage, that kind of abandonment of, of, of history. It's quite clear that Christ 
even on a merely human level, is the most central figure in human history. Much of what we consider the modern civilized world dates from the conversion of the Greeks and the Romans, uh, the developments in politics and in culture and in all aspects of life that came as a result of the influence of Christ on individuals, uh, notwithstanding the sins of Christians and the, you know, the the things that uh, the Christians and the and the Church even has done wrong over the centuries. I think to an unbiased observer, Christ is a very legitimate place to divide history into before he came and after he came. Unfortunately, not all people feel of this way. And so in the last 40, maybe 50 years, uh, you ever see ever greater usage of uh, BCE and CE, typically in academic works, but also in other you know, other more uh, everyday kinds of things as well. I I think it's a great mistake, and I think that society uh, is depreciated as a result of it, and the general neglect of of the history and the role of Christ and the Church in developing most of the theories which are uh, in effect in culture, in politics, have their formation and basis uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, as de- de- derived from Israel and from Athens and from Rome. And that that credit is simply not given by this practice, as it should be. Do you think the diplomas in 2023 from Northwestern say the year of our Lord? I'd be curious to know, and I know somebody that I will ask, and I will do that. If I were a betting man, I'd say no. Maybe not. Um, uh, I think uh, at many of... Many private schools, which have a religious history, as Northwestern did, founded by uh, Methodist ministers who wanted to make sure in uh, you know early pioneer days of Illinois and Chicago that there was a place to go to go to school, you know, equal to the Harvards and the Yales and the others that were in existence, you know, and then they found they founded the school, and so there is a certain deference and and to that history there. But it's not universal, so I probably wouldn't I probably wouldn't take your bet on that. It's a very special listener comment line edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWDN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's open line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Carry EWTN with you everywhere when you download the free EWTN app. You can enjoy EWTN live TV and radio streams, audio and video on demand, EWTN news, program schedules, prayers, devotionals, and much more. Download the EWTN app at EWTNapps.com. Again, it's a very special listener comment line edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we won't be taking your calls today. Let's take a listen to our next listener comment line call. 
This is Barbara. I'm from Lubbock, Texas, and I want to know on the chrism mass when they bring the holy oils in to bless them. I want to know if the bishop at that point is acting in in persona Christi. Well, and in, in all of the sacramental acts, there is these acts are done in persona Christi. Uh, in the case of the priest uh, hearing confessions and, cel- and celebrating the Eucharist, consecrating the elements and so on, uh, he's uh, operating according to the priesthood of Christ, such as uh, he receives through the, you know, through the order of the priesthood. And the bishop is operating according to his, the high priesthood of Christ. So it's understood to be the highest expression of Christ's priesthood. And among the things that go with that is the uh, is the uh, ability and the fact and the the power to uh, consecrate those those uh, the oils, and also to do confirmations, which can be given by faculty to uh, to priests as well. But it's properly the the bishop's power uh, and authority to do that. Uh, so yes, those are actions by the priest acting in the person of Christ, uh, because if you look at what those oils are used for, they're used in the sacraments, they're used in the anointing of the sick, they're used in the ordination, they're used in baptism, in which chrism is also give, uh, given on the child, placed on the forehead of the child. And so, uh, in, I think I've already mentioned the ordination of priests and so on. So there are many uses, and here we have a perpetuation of the nature uh, and the graces which the church are given to be given to the world. And so they're very significant, and they're, and and uh, Christ's power is central to uh, to therefore to doing those things and to carrying on the mission of the church. Again, a very special listener comment line edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Let's take a listen to another call. Hi, this is Ryan from Monroe, Washington. And my question kind of relates to the history of the church. I know a lot of dioceses are combining parishes right now in the U.S. And I wonder, what's some historical background on parishes combining Okay. Well, uh, maybe we go back and see what uh, what happened in the early church. We had the apostles, and so the apostles went out on their missionary journeys, which, uh, at least in the case of Peter and Paul, are described in the Acts of the Apostles, and in other traditions which account where different uh, ones of the apostles went. And where they went, as we're seeing in the case of St. Paul, they ordained uh, uh, men to the priesthood by the laying on of hands, presbyters, and they also left behind those who had the authority to oversee episcopoi, and this would be uh, bishops in English. And so they, they gave the, those powers. And when the church was small, what you typically had, for example, was the celebration of the Eucharist on Sunday with the bishop surrounded by the priests, surrounded by the deacons, typically the number seven, such as we see in the scripture. In Rome, there were seven deacons assisting the pope and in other places as well. We can, we can assume that was the case. And so the church was seen as a whole. But as the church grew... I guess you could say you could multiply the number of bishops or you could simply divide up the territory of the bishops uh, and then to delegate uh, the responsibility for particular 
particular territories to the presbyter, presbyterate, to the different priests. And so you see this in Rome with the development of, of the parishes there. And even in those days in the early church, the deacons often had administrative authority over uh, portions of the of the diocese. You look at the history of Rome, that was the case. You see the persecution of the various deacons, uh, such as Lawrence and others, who were involved in that administrative role, assisting the, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And so I guess what you could say is that the division of the territory of the bishop to those who assist him in his ministry, the priests, is a practical thing. So it's in that way, it's of ecclesiastical institution. And so by ecclesial, ecclesiastical uh, institution, uh, it can be rearranged. And so that's what you see down through history. Parish, uh, 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 dioceses are set up. Dioceses disappear into history. When you look at those who serve as auxiliaries in, in uh, archdioceses, for example, uh, or you see those who are in the Curia in Rome who don't have a diocese at all, but they've been made bishops or archbishops in order to uh, give more authority to their role in assisting the Pope in his management of the universal church, they are often given uh, what is called a titular see. In other words, it's a see that's no longer in, in existence. In the early church in North Africa, there were very many dioceses. We know about Augustine, who was a North African bishop in Carthage. Uh, and so what happened is when the, the Muslim invasions came from the, from the east, the church in North Africa was essentially wiped out. And in other places in the, uh, as well where the church had been established and over time had been destroyed in those areas. And so these are empty sees, as it were, and those are given uh, to auxiliary bishops and curial bishops and so on uh, to indicate uh, a certain association with this, the, this structure which we had in the early church and also to indicate their episcopal power and, 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 and the title, if you will. So what is done in, in combining and dividing parishes and setting up parishes in the first place is a practical thing. Uh, that can be done on the, in the, by, by the bishop as he sees necessary. Uh, it's, it's a weighty thing, and bishops are all, always reluctant to have it done because people get attached to where they were born, where they were married, where their parents were uh, uh, where their funerals were held, when they were where they were buried from, and as a response, as a result of that, they're very reluctant to see those parishes disappear. But sometimes it's practical for financial reasons, or shortage of vocations, or, or other considerations. You know, so those are always sad things. But the 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 bishop has the authority to do it. And sometimes people uh, protest to Rome about particular decisions that are made, and those can be uh, reviewed, uh, and Rome can decide to affirm the bishop's judgment or to, you know, to reverse it in entirely or in some respect. Uh, but again, these are all practical decisions as, up, as, as the setting up of dioceses themselves. Again, it's a very special listener comment line edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we won't be taking your calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future listener comment line show, 
Simply call us after 4 p.m. Central Time at 833-288-EWTN. Let's take a listen to our next call. Hi, Pauline, Waterville, Maine. I have a question. Once one person goes to confession, do they have, it seems I heard on EWTN that we'd have 20 days from that date of confession in order to receive a plenary indulgence. So I'd like to hear that. Okay. Yeah, um, you'll find in old, older books uh, a dating of eight days. And uh, this meant that uh, when you go to confession, either eight days before or eight days after, after, you can gain a plenary indulgence. Now, the reason of that was that one of the conditions for gaining a plenary indulgence is to go to confession and eight days before and after became the, the standard, to receive communion either on the day or within some period of time uh, in relationship to the day. And there is no set thing. I think logically you would say it would be within days in some, some respect anyway. To do the work itself and to pray for, for the intentions of the Holy Father. So in the year 2000, when Pope John Paul II established uh, the Great Jubilee to celebrate 2,000 years since the birth of Christ, uh, one of the things he did was to give a Jubilee indulgence. And in the Jubilee indulgence, he set norms, which included for uh, 20 days more or less before or after. And even the 20 days is not rigidly 20, but more or less. If it were 27, you'd say, well, that's pushing a little bit. If it was 21 or 2, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But 20 days before or after. So when the Jubilee ended, we started actually getting questions from people saying, well, is that changed or not? And I wrote a letter to the Apostolic Penitentiary, which is the cardinal responsible in Rome for the uh, indulgences and other, other things, uh, some dispensations and so on. And I got a very nice letter back saying, yes, this is essentially in perpetuity. In other words, what John Paul II established for the year 2000 for the Jubilee Indulgence is now the norm for plenary indulgences generally in the church. And that means that you could, you could put it this way. If you went to confession at least every 40 days, 20 before or 20 after, then every day in that 40-day period you could gain a plenary indulgence, whereas before it would have been uh, 16 days. So that's, that's basically the logic of that. Now, so as we don't push our confessions out too much, I think the practice and the norm, which is general, not norm, but the practice which has been encouraged over the centuries of at least going every month to confession, remains a good one uh, because that ensures that we you know, are examining our conscience regularly, we're working on our faults regularly, uh, and you know, Pope John Paul II apparently went every day to confession. Um, I doubt if he really needed it, but he went every day, and that's a little bit tough for the lay person to do, or even for the clergyman to do. So we pick a practice, and we stick with it, and that's a good habit. And going, as I said, within those 40 days, the 20 before and after, we could receive an indulgence, plenary indulgence, on every single day if we so choose to. 
Again, this is a very special listener comment line edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. If you'd like to be part of a future listener comment line show, simply call our main number after 4 p.m. Central Time, 833-288-EWTN. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. It's our first ever listener comment line call episode of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Uh, Let's take a listen to our next call for Colin Donovan. Hello, this is Jordan, caller from Texas, and I was wondering if you could tell me your thoughts on liberation theology. Do you think someone could be both a Catholic and a socialist or a Marxist? Okay. Uh, well, if, if you understood as liberation theology in that manner, the answer to that would be no, and there is lots of ink spilled on that by, by Rome over the decades. Uh, Liberation theology as an idea put forward, I think, beginning in the, in the 60s and maybe even a little bit earlier. Um, I, I think uh, one of the uh, students of uh, Karl Rahner uh, named Metz uh, sort of got that ball rolling. Very popular in Latin America was to look at the sacred scripture as and, and the Exodus, for, for example, or in particular, as a... As a um, redemption from, uh, you know, from, the, from slavery, from oppression, and so on. And if we only consider the, the, the what would be called scripturally, the typological value of, of for example, of the, of the Exodus as an expression of God liberating man from mechanisms of sin in the world, that view, that biblical view, would be considered legitimate. Now then, some got into applying a Marxist analysis to that. They drew conclusions about uh, revolutions uh, to overthrow oppression and political systems and so on, things which would not be considered in line with the morality of the church and the faith of the church. And this is what the Holy Father, this was during the the pontificate of John Paul II, when Joseph Ratzinger was the prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. This is what was objected to that. So the working among the poor in Latin America, the trying to lift them out of their poverty, you know, know, opposition to governmental regimes which— had systems which oppressed them and kept them in their state, uh, in in their poverty, or which for the benefit of the rich and the powerful and those who were connected, uh, it would have been fine. But once it brought the idea of socialism and Marxism, 
And we have to remember what Marxism is, is a materialistic system which sees history as a cyclical thing going from one extreme to another, but then in a new, a new manner moving forward, a thesis, antithesis, and then this progress. And there's nothing Christian, there's nothing biblical, there's nothing uh, Catholic about that kind of approach to it. But the idea of spiritual and liberation of the poor from the point of view of Christians working together to help get people out of poverty, to help them oppose uh, political systems which, which kept them in their poverty or even took away their human rights, as, as many did. The odd thing is it was precisely the Marxist systems which took away their rights. So you look at the Marxist system in Nicaragua right now, and what is it doing? It's oppressing the poor, and when the church speaks out in favor of the poor, they oppress the church. They throw the bishop in prison. So there is no conflict between lifting the poor and helping the poor get out of their poverty and and so on, and the Catholic faith. And it seems rather odd in retrospect in looking at today's world and at the world of liberation theology in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that now we find the very systems of socialism and Marxist thinking which supposedly were going to do that, keeping them in it and opposing the uh, the one institution that is working on behalf of the poor, and that is the church. But those are the ironies of history. The church tends to be right, and those who think they can only use a materialistic analysis of man and history and so on, so on will always be demonstrated to be wrong and on the wrong side of history as the, the liberation uh, theologians of Central America and Latin America that now run oppressive governments have shown themselves to do exactly. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of, uh, excuse, pardon me, it's a very special listener comment line call edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Let's take a listen to another one of those calls. Hey, good evening. My name is Brian, calling you from Kingwood, Texas. Question that uh, someone could uh, educate me a little bit on the fourth luminous mystery that I don't have a very good understanding of, but I do love the uh, luminous mysteries. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, this is a popular one, the, uh, the transfiguration, because I think, uh, you know, people don't understand that here. We get, uh, we get Moses and Elijah. Uh, we have the three apostles prostrate uh, on the ground and wondering what's going on um, and then wanting to stay there. If we go back to the incarnation, and, and St. Paul has a beautiful statement on this. Christ did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself taking the form of a man. Part of that emptying was to give up the divine glory, to give up the, you might say, the prerogatives of divinity. And when he walked among the people of Nazareth and then later in his public ministry in Galilee and elsewhere, you know, all they could say, is this the carpenter's son? They saw no indications of what his mother and St. Joseph knew him to be the Son of the Eternal God, God himself, 
in human form, having taken our flesh. And so he laid that down, and he gave that up. Now, we, the curtain cracks a little bit, bit in the majesty of his teaching, but many great men have had wonderful teaching and explanations of things. But it really cracked when he did his miracles, and he did things which demonstrated a command over nature, walking on water, multiplying loaves and fishes, those kinds of miracles, raising Lazarus. These things were contrary to nature, contrary to any human expectation. These were an acts, acts of God. So we got that little glimpse, and he gave us that glimpse to affirm the truth of the other things he said, such as before Abraham came to be, I am the very name God gave to Moses that was his personal name. I am. In other words, that self-existent being who has no predecessor, who always was, always is, and always will be. And this is who Christ was. And his miracles, those glimpses of his divinity, affirmed those things and helped people believe in the truth of what he was saying, which seemed so radical to so many of his contemporaries. And then in the transfiguration, having said what he did, you know, that they would see, you know, the Son of Man dragged before kings, as in before the Sanhedrin, also the representative of Caesar, of course, and he would be, you know, he would be put to death. And they were shocked. They were saddened. What does it all mean? And so he took the favorites, the ones closest to him, the inner circle, if you will, Peter, James, and John, and he took them up, and he allowed them to see more of his glory than he revealed to anybody else. And he allowed the author of the law, the instrument of the law, Moses, and Elijah, the great prophet, to affirm who he was by their presence. Then it all went away, and they had to, with the help of, the help of grace and not these great lights and, and the consolation of the mountain, they had to go through seeing him put to death and even wondering, well, will he rise from the dead? So it was for their benefit, but also for ours, that they could witness to having seen that glory and as well as having seen uh, his resurrection. So it's, it's one of the most beautiful stories. And I, uh, I remember in the, in the Jubilee year, uh, along with Scott Holtz uh, from our radio department. He was working in our radio department here at the time. Uh, we, we went to Israel on, on, to prepare the way for Pope John Paul II going there during the Jubilee year. And we went up on that Mount of Transfiguration where you could see all around and you could see in every direction and you could see Nazareth in the distance and you could also see the plains of Megiddo where it would all end at some point in history. Uh, in Armageddon. But Christ always wants us to be consoled and to know that whatever happens in human history, uh, he is with us as he was with the apostles. Again, it's a very special listener comment line edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Let's take a listen to our next listener comment line call. Uh, yes, this is Ann in Bay City. I want to know about Medjugorje, if it's 
authenticated by the church or not? Well, the answer is not. Uh, there have been three commissions. The last one ha- is uh, inconclusive. The first commission was that which the bishop of the day established in which he judged it not uh, credible. The second was uh, one which was called because some complained against that. It was the Yugoslavian bishops. Of course, that's a country that no longer exists uh, from the communist era of uh, uh, of the Balkan part of the world. And they may come to the same conclusion. And the third one was established by, uh, by the Pope, and uh, its conclusion has never been public, although it seems fairly likely that it was not in favor or it was fa- in favor only in part of the credibility of Medjugorje. What the Pope did, rather than affirming that decision, was to sort of leave it on his desk and to establish a uh, pastoral responsibility and an archbishop uh, in charge of it to ensure that the Marian piety of the many people who go there, and there are, I'm not sure what it is annually, but let's just say a million, it's probably not too far off, who go there, that their their piety mean is in a straight line, in a, a proper Marian fashion, and doesn't get into exaggerations. Uh, it doesn't affirm what is said to be or alleged to be ongoing, and that is continued uh, visitations to the uh, some of the seers. Uh, the church affirms that, does not affirm that rather, nor really says anything about it. Uh, that's that's distinct from what is being done there, uh, where this uh, pastoral activity to keep the Marian devotion proceeding in a straight line, in a proper line, according to church teaching, I- teaching is the purpose of Medjugorje. What this pope or some future pope may say in that respect, whether that regime would change, whether in view of, you know, finally approving it or finally disapproving it, nobody can say. But that's the status right now. Uh, Pilgrimages are allowed to go there. Things are basically overseen by the the legate, the archbishop appointed by the pope to ensure the authenticity of the Marian activity there without any affirmation regarding the credibility of the alleged events. That is a clear element of the statements which have come out from the Holy See since the 1990s on Medjugorje. Colin, is it true that Holy Mother Church uh, uh, opts not to make any sort of definitive judgment on any uh, uh, alleged apparition while the alleged apparition continues? Generally, that's true. Uh, I I guess it would be... You know, having not been in on the, the the talks regarding that in the decision making process, I guess it would be how they how to distinguish the first events, and some speak of I think it's the first six events, the early events, how to distinguish those from the alleged continuing uh, visitations of some of the what were formerly children, but are now of course substantially older. Uh, 40 years ago now, so 40 years older. That's the, that's the difficulty. Uh, 
And so I think you could you could argue that that until the thing has totally stopped, they can't make a definitive call. Or you separate, and I think this was one of the arguments, or you separate out some number of the early apparitions and say, we affirm these, but not these. So I think that's the limbo of the situation, uh, whether that's even possible. I do not believe, given this, the two previous commissions, or even what is claimed regarding the, the Roman one, that it's even a majority of those who voted who supported the authenticity of the first several. Uh, but I'm not certain of that point. But some number of those voted in favor of those, but uh, those early ones, but it didn't, uh, didn't carry the day, and so it remains you know, on the Pope's desk, so to speak. I want to invite you to join us for Blessed to Play with Ron Meyer Sunday afternoon, 4.30 Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. Ron talks with athletes and sports professionals about the role that faith plays in their lives. That's Blessed to Play Sunday afternoons, 4.30 Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. Again, it's a very special listener comment line call edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Let's take a listen to the next one of those calls. This is Therese from Wethersfield, Connecticut. My question is about the priest that omits the washing of the hands before the consecration occurs. This has happened twice that I'm aware of, and I want to know what, how to handle it. <laughs> um, well, it, it doesn't, doesn't inauthenticate, inv- inv- invalidate in any way the, the Mass itself, the consecration, uh, it would certainly be a violation of the norms. I don't know why he would do it. It has uh, purpose. There's a prayer that goes with it uh, that the priest says it's an act of uh, it's an act of his uh, piety. It's an external sign of his preparation to uh, to, to hold the sacred elements uh, and that for them to be consecrated. So there are a lot of reasons why he ought to do it, uh, in particular obedience, not to mention the sign value of the act. Um, and what his motive would be, I can't you know, possibly understand or, or see what it would be. Um, might he have some dermatitis that is a problem that he can't get wet? I don't know. <laughs> Theoretically, there may be a medical reason. But I've never heard of anything like that. So I think the way to handle it is in charity to go to him and say, Father, do you have do you have a reason for not uh, performing that rite which is in the Missal? And uh, find out what his answer is and go from there. Again, this is a very special listener comment line call edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. If you'd like to be part of a future listener comment line program, we'd love to uh, hear from you, and you can leave your question by calling our regular studio line at 833-288-EWTN after 4 p.m. Central Time on any day of the week. So call us at 833-288-EWTN after 4 p.m. Central Time, and you can leave your message for Colin or any of our hosts. 
Let's take a listen now to another one of those listener comment line calls. Hi, this is Mary Beth. I'm from Timnus, Colorado, and I want to know if it is a thing or proper to remove statues in the church during Advent for some reason. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, covering them is typical during Lent. You can uh, certainly from uh, the end of the, or from Holy Thursday through the Easter Vigil, before the Easter Vigil. Uh, And it can also be done for the final uh, week or the final two weeks of Lent. Uh, two weeks in the, under the old calendar that was in, uh, in place before Vatican II. This was Passion Tide when you had Passion Sunday and then Palm Sunday. And now the Sunday before Easter is both, uh, serves both of those purposes. So it's a one-week uh, final preparation for Easter. But no, I've not heard of that ever being done in Advent, and this would be another question where I think in charity to go, Father, why why do you do this? What significance? Uh, and hopefully it's not a whim, because I would hope that there is at least a theological idea behind it, even if there's not uh, any correspondence with uh, liturgical norms. Colin, it might be a good opportunity to just uh, maybe say a few words about um, the Church's uh, tradition and the purpose behind the church's tradition of sacred art in the worship space. Right, and this, the sacred art, of course, is to remind us of the realities. They're ter- typically, of course, the crucifix is the central thing, because the cross is the central thing. It's the scandal which St. Paul talks about, uh, which the scandal which Christ himself, the scandal on the stumbling stone, which he is for many people. Uh, St. Paul speaks of that, of that in his address to the Athenians in the Acts of the Apostles. Basically, they laughed him off the mount um, because the cross makes no sense to, to people. So there is a reason for why the crucifix is pre- must be present during the Mass uh, for the people to look at, for the priest to, to look at. There are the, the times and the seasons, such as that period right before Easter, those days when it can be covered. Uh, we do the unveiling of the cross progressively at the Easter Vigil, uh, or rather during the Good Friday liturgy, the, during the Passion liturgy, you know, unveiling one arm and then the second and so on until Christ is fully unveiled. And this has significance. The other statues appoint us also to the, the role of different individuals uh, in, in salvation history, principally Our Lady uh, as, the, as the mother of the, the Word made flesh, and St. Joseph as the guardian of the Redeemer, as John Paul II called him, and the other saints, which are the patrons of a particular parish or a particular diocese or of some significance to you know, an ethnic group. There's probably not an Italian church that doesn't have a statue of St. Anthony in it. Uh, holding the child Jesus, so or St. Patrick in an Irish church. So all of these are significant and are religiously helpful to help us move from this material world in which we live and exist, and which is in many respects a burden to us, and to lift our mind and our even our eyes up to spiritual realities and to call out of us, you know, the the faith in those realities. And so. Uh, the statues and the sacramental signs which the church uses are all oriented to try to draw out of us 
uh, uh, a deeper appreciation of our faith and the realities of our faith uh, and to help us adhere more deeply to Christ and the mystery of mysteries of the faith. And let's take a listen to our final listener comment line call. Hi there. My name is Roger from London, Canada, and I'd like to ask you if there's a way that we could better use science or archaeology or even some other branch of knowledge that helps support or supplement our beliefs. So, for example, I had heard that the tomb of St. Peter was accidentally excavated during the time of the Second World War. So wouldn't that bring true Christ's words when he said, and upon you I will build my church? Like literally, it is Mm -hmm. built over the tomb of St. Peter. Your thoughts? Thank you. Sure. Well, we're just talking about uh, holy objects and the role of statues and the the material elements of, of the church uses in the liturgy to lift our minds to God. So ultimately, the the truths of the faith require divine faith. The precise meaning of faith in the in the mind of the church is the grace, the power that God places in our heart at baptism that enables us to believe something which is a supernatural truth for which there is no sensory demonstration or evidence for it. doesn't mean it's contrary to reason or contrary to anything, but just that we can't put evidence for it as we can for material things. Now, truths that relate to the history of the church. So to the extent that the shroud points to the passion of Christ and is that element, to the extent that the church is truly built over St. Peter's, it wasn't accidentally discovered, but they began to excavate where it had always been said uh, the bones of Peter would be, that the church was built over him, that the altar was above it, and they found what they were looking for. These things help. They're apologetically helpful but they don't in and of themselves increase our faith. That depends upon our, our cooperation with the grace God gives us, the grace of faith itself. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, producer Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your octave of Christmas. And until we get together next time, God bless. <laughs>